Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. The text for us this evening, this is from Isaiah chapter two, and then we're gonna nerd out just a bit, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit of stuff about the book of Isaiah uh, on a broader scale. This is Isaiah chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says, this is what Isaiah, a Moses' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion. The same word for instruction there is Torah. It can be translated in a few different ways as law or teaching or instruction. Here, this is the instruction, the Torah of God that's coming from Zion. The Lord's word is coming from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. The word of God for the people of God. Now, one of the reasons why I like the book of Isaiah so much is because it's a complex book. In fact, one scholar, Robert Alter, says the book of Isaiah may well be the greatest challenge that modern readers will find in the biblical corpus to their notions of what constitutes a book. What Bob is saying here is the book of Isaiah has these complexities. It hasn't just fallen out of the sky and given uh, to the people of Israel all at one time. And there's layers upon layers within this book adding to the complexities that we see when we read it. Now, if any of you have ever been brave enough to dive into Old Testament poetry or prophecy, you know that it is riddled with difficulties. There's things in that gap of culture and time that are difficult for us to traverse. And what we have here it makes it even more difficult because in one book, the book of Isaiah, we have diverse contexts, plural, and authors, plural, of the book of Isaiah. And this is where it gets real fun because most people just take it for granted as they open up their Bible and it says Isaiah at the top that, oh my, Isaiah ben Amos or Isaiah the son of Amos must have written all of these words. Side note, when we were... um, having our first child. I thought it would be really cool to name our firstborn. First of all, I wanted to name him Abraham, but Kate and I have decided that if Abe ever comes to faith in Jesus, that we'll have a name-changing ceremony, much like Abram to Abraham in the Old Testament, just with a different focus, so we're, we're good there. Um, but I also wanted to name him 
Abraham ben Joshua James. Because in the Hebrew Bible, Christy Engel, in the Hebrew Bible, Ben means son. And when you put it in that construct form, Ben Joshua, it means Abram, son of Joshua James. That's what I wanted. So when you see Isaiah ben Amos, that means Isaiah, son of Amos, or as our translation had it, Isaiah, Amos's son. But what you get here is in chapters 1 through 39, you have an author who was identified as Isaiah ben Amos. In fact, the very first verse of the book locates him as such. It says, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, list some kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. These are the kings of Judah. It locates Isaiah ben Amos in the south. He's one who's prophesying about things that are going on in and around Jerusalem or in Judah. And he's prophesying at a time that scholars would call pre-exile. Say pre-exile. Pre-exile. Kate's shaking her head, no. She says, no, I will not do what you tell me to do here, there, or anywhere. And I appreciate that. She's a strong, independent woman, okay? And we, we work together as a team. She's like, hurry it along. Okay. Pre-exile is, is what means that exile hasn't happened yet in Judah or in Jerusalem. They have not been destroyed yet. They will be destroyed, but they haven't been destroyed yet. And note this time period. This is in the 8th century B.C., and specifically, you could narrow it down a bit more, although not, not, not too firmly here, somewhere around 740 to somewhere around 701, namely when the Assyrian Empire was reigning and ruling and causing havoc because back in the day, empires attempted to take over the known world. And at this moment, when Isaiah ben Amos is writing, this is Assyria's turn. These people were magnificent warriors. We've talked some about the implements of war that they've used, the siege engines, where they would just ram this big machine into the walls of the city, and they would move a lever to destroy the walls and allow their well-trained army to go in and to wreak havoc. This this has not happened in Judah in the south, but this has happened at 722 BC in Israel, meaning the Assyrian Empire has already destroyed Israel in the north, and now everybody is, is on the edge of their seats wondering what is going to happen. And this is the context in which Isaiah ben Amos is prophesying. Note that when we talk about Old Testament prophecy, we are not talking about someone telling the, the distant future. We are talking about preachers who come in to address a moment in time and say the things that are happening here and now, they are not good. And we need to change these things in order for God to bring us back. They're not just saying, hey, good news, guys. In roughly 700 years or so, Jesus is gonna show up and everything will be fine. Yeah, but we'll be dead. Yeah, I know, but isn't it cool that sometime late? That's just not how prophecy really worked. They were instead addressing things that were happening in their context more often than not. 
Okay, so in the first 39 chapters of this book, we have Isaiah ben Amos prophesying before Judah goes into exile, but things change in chapter 40. Things change dramatically. The setting changes. And scholars see that it's no longer talking about something that is impending. It's no longer talking about destruction on the horizon. It's destruction that has already happened. It's a people who did not suffer under the Assyrian Empire because the Assyrian Empire is destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire is tired of Judah and Jerusalem playing their games, so they destroy Judah and Jerusalem and remove the people from the land and place them into captivity. In the second half of the book, or what scholars have referred to as Second Isaiah, their situation in life has changed dramatically. No longer is this an imminent threat. This is a threat that has been experienced, and now they're attempting to figure out what in the world is going on. If you guys, over the next few weeks, if you hear any uh, bit of Handel's Messiah, and if you hear this bit that I like to sing from time to time, comfort, comfort, comfort ye my people, comfort. If you ever hear that, this is Isaiah chapter 40, where God is saying, you guys have, you guys have gotten it, you're in exile, you're away from the homeland, but comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Everything is changing. They've experienced exile, they're in the midst of experiencing exile, and note, this is about 150 or so years after the fact, uh, moving from this 8th century context to now in the 6th century after Judah has been destroyed. The same thing roughly happens in chapters 56 through 66, and scholars say that perhaps this is a third Isaiah, and the setting is different. No longer are they in exile out there somewhere. They've come back home to Judah, but they're looking around, and they say, yeah, uh, all of those promises that were, I mean, you really played them up, but we're here now, and it's kind of still a big fat mess. So what you have in Isaiah is you've got these three distinct contexts with these three different authors or um, communities that are writing. And some people would say that after this is penned, then Isaiah, the second Isaiah comes along and knows this book and is adding to and taking away and shaping. And this Isaiah, the third Isaiah, knows the two that have come before and they're shaping and they're putting this together. In other words, what we have here is not what you usually think of as the Bible that's just falling out of the sky. Again, Robert Alter says, the bewildering fact is that the prophecies of Isaiah, son of Amos, have been editorially mingled with a welter of prophecies by other hands and from later periods. And if you're tracking with what I'm saying, this comes into conflict with how you might understand this book because more often than not, we don't dip into what each text is doing, we just take it for granted that it's all like it says, it's all written by Isaiah, or it's all written by Matthew, or it's all written by Jonah, or Jeremiah, or whoever you want to put in that grid, and we don't see the layer upon layer, the complexity, the beautiful layers that are being placed in this text. 
Now, I will say that, I don't know, early on into our tenure as a church, when we preached through Isaiah 40 through 55, we took this for granted. I do want you to understand that we're a really weird community because this right here that I'm saying, yeah, no-brainer, done deal, some Old Testament professors, if they were to say that in their Christian college or university, they would be fired nearly immediately. So tuck this stuff away and hold on to it, but I want to at least demonstrate to you why I believe this is important. My main man, Walter Brueggemann, says clearly when we look at the passage that we read um, at the outset, clearly those first few verses of chapter two, their placement here just after the harshness of chapter one, it's a later editorial maneuver. <laughs> Most scholars are a-okay with pieces of Isaiah being written at different times and then being shaped purposefully to communicate a message to their current audience. Now, I wanna show you why this might be important for us because here in this passage, what we have is an imaginative intrusion. And flanked on either side of Isaiah chapter two are notes of pretty ridiculous discussions and explanations of the punishment that God's people have been through. In fact, as Brueggemann says, chapter one is harsh in the tone that it portrays. So clearly, the beginning of chapter two is put there in an intentional editorial maneuver to maybe not soften that, but say, hope is coming. There's more to your story, Judah. Do not just play the role of the victim, but wait because there will be days in which Jerusalem is the highest point in the known world. And God's Torah, God's instruction will pour forth from Jerusalem and all the nations will come. And there will be a day when nations will not be at war anymore, when they will take the implements of war and they will refashion them into farming tools so that they can all benefit together. There will come a day. This is what Isaiah is saying here in this context. It's an imaginative intrusion. We're not sure when or where it comes from, but on the heels of the punishment we see in chapter one and, in, and setting the frame for the punishment that we see in the back half of chapter two, we can note that this is something that the readers would want to hold on to. But when we think about the punishment in chapter one, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it is so damning in the way that it communicates to us. You say that sounds like a weird thing for you to say is your favorite passage of scripture, but it's one that keeps me honest in what we're doing here. And I'm gonna paint this picture for you. This is Isaiah chapter one. Again, we don't know the time frame here, but this is probably as what they would have thought was the impending Assyrian destruction of the people was looming. And this is what God is saying to them. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is classic. This is like they're calling the heavens and the earth to stand before a court and give testimony almost. They're calling them as witnesses in what's about to happen. 
He says, hear, O heavens, and give, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have nurtured and raised, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's stall, but Israel didn't know. My people did not pay heed. God's saying, even the ox and the donkey, they know, but my child Israel does not know. Woe, offending nation, people weighed down with crime, seed of evildoers, sons acting ruinously. They have forsaken the Lord. They have scorned Israel's holy one. They have fallen behind. A little bit farther on, listen to the word of the Lord, O leaders of Sodom. This is God's prophecy to the people. This is the preaching of Isaiah to the people, likening them to Sodom and Gomorrah which little known fact, you might know the story there and some of the difficulties that, that are raised by that story, but all throughout the Old Testament, the sin of Sodom is more specifically their lack of hospitality. Just tuck that one in the back of your brain. O leaders of Sodom, give ear to our God's teaching, O people of Gomorrah. Why, this is Bob's weird translation, why need I all your sacrifices? He's trying to tell you the, where these words are in the Hebrew text, but basically God is saying, I don't need your sacrifices. I am sad with the burnt offerings of rams and the suet of fatted beasts and the blood of bulls and sheep and he goats. I don't desire them. Why is this weird? God says, I don't want your sacrifices. What do we know about the Old Testament? Sacrifices are pretty important. Yeah, God seems to be the one that's kind of behind it, saying this is a way for this sort of relationship to work. But now he's saying, get out of here. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm saddened by it. The blood of bulls and sheep and he goats. I don't desire. When you come to see my face, who asked this of you? Who asked you to trample into my courts? Who asked you to come into this place and be the type of people that you are? You shall no longer bring false grain offering. It is the incense of abomination to me. Whenever you offer these, these sacrifices, the aroma that comes up to me, it's, it's an abomination. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, a lot of times people would reckon um, sacrifices as the feeding of the gods and the sacrifices and the smells of sacrifices that would emanate from the temple would be a pleasing aroma to God, much like we probably had pleasing aromas on Thursday as you go outside and you come back into the house, you're like, oh, apple pie, oh, mac and cheese, oh, fill in the blank with your favorite food. You know, turkey, I've been seeing this lately, turkey's been getting a bad rap of late, like people don't like eating turkey, y'all need to get out of here with that mess because me and my brother-in-law, we, we can fry a pretty nice turkey, okay? We had a little sriracha injection. It was very tasteful, okay? You shall no longer bring false grain offering. It's an incense of abomination to me, your new moon and Sabbath. Let them call an assembly. I can't bear the crime and con convocation anymore. I can't bear those two things coming together, your prayer, but also your injustice and your crime, your new moons and your appointed times. I despise them. They have become a burden to me. I can't bear them. And when you spread your palms, check this. When you spread your palms, I avert my eyes. Though you pray abundantly, I don't listen. Your hands, they're full of blood. What you do out there doesn't match what you project in here, Israel. 
Wash and become pure. Remove your evil acts from my eyes. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, make the oppressed happy, defend the orphan, argue the widow's case. We talk a lot about how applicable or non-applicable the Bible is. We could just camp out here for a bit, right? Wash and become pure, remove your evil acts from my eyes, cease doing evil, instead learn to do what's good, seek justice, make the oppressed happy. When was the last time that was on the forefront of your brain? We might not even be in situations where we have any sort of contact with the oppressed, let alone make them happy, to defend the orphan, to argue for the widow. How has the faithful town, how has Jerusalem, how has the center of all that is good, how has she become a whore? She's filled with justice where righteousness used to lodge and now it's murderers. It's people with blood on their hands drop down, they don't defend the orphan and the widow's case does not touch them. Again, Robert Alter says that Isaiah's outrage and God's outrage is not chiefly with their cultic disloyalty, meaning he's not ticked that they're not offering the right sacrifices. He's not ticked that they're not conducting themselves in the proper manner in the synagogue. He's not ticked because the praise and worship wasn't on point today. He's not ticked because the sermon wasn't speaking to you. He's not ticked because you're not getting fed. He's not ticked because fill in the blank with whatever happens here that goes wrong, which we could, we could get a list. We could get a list going. He's not discontent with that. Instead, he is outraged by social injustice, namely the indifference to the plight of the poor and the helpless, the exploitation of the vulnerable, acts that are represented here as the moral equivalent of murder. This is what God is saying to his people. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Isaiah chapter one, man, it keeps me grounded. Because everything that we do and everything that I attempt to be and who I am in my commitments to Jesus, maybe it's the guilt, but I hear this a lot. Your hands are covered in blood. It's not the sacrifices that I'm after, Josh. It's the things that you bring in with you that do not go with the words that you say. Side note, there's a handful of these passages in the Old Testament. God is not anti-sacrifice. This is not where Christians get to say, see, sacrificial system wasn't that big a deal anyway, and Jesus got rid of it. This is not what God is saying. He's saying, if you're gonna do it, if you're gonna observe this Old Testament Israel, don't come into my house with your perversions of justice and the way that you have oppressed people. If that's who you are, stay home. This is me, this is my, this is my quotation here. <laughs> In other words, Isaiah is saying all of your religious displays are disgusting to God because you don't give a care about the suffering around you. This is why I keep coming back to Isaiah chapter one because I have to assess how do I show care and concern for the widows and the orphans 
for those who are on the margins of our community who need to be brought into this space. Now, as I'm preparing for uh, Advent week one, and I've got Isaiah chapter two kind of hanging out there, and I know that in order for us to understand Isaiah chapter two, we have to understand Isaiah chapter one. All the while, I'm reading this book called On the Courthouse Lawn, which subtitled is Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century. Now, this book is very, very difficult because it forces people to stare into the mirror and see how we played a role in either the justice or injustice of people within our community. The weird thing about this book is that as um, Sherilyn Eiffel, she is the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund President and Director Counsel. She's, uh, how do we say, she's, she's great. (laughs) Huge build up. I know, yeah, I I know. know. Thurgood Marshall used to do what she does used to hold that title that she now holds. You see what I'm saying? She's a big deal. She, thank you, Scott. She's, she's a big deal. And what she's chosen to do with the first half of this, the way, uh, to, the, the way into this legacy of lynching, she's decided to shine a light upon the eastern shore of Maryland as her test case for what has happened and how we as a community can move beyond that. She's not from here. This is not a local person who decided to self-publish a book. This is just someone saying that the Eastern Shore has a bad track record, and we can use this as an example to move towards reparations, to move towards reconciliation, to move towards some sort of redemption that's happening here. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we could talk about all sorts of atrocities that have taken place right here in our own town. In fact, as you read the first half of this book, it talks about the old hospital, and it talks about the old fire station, and it talks about the courthouse lawn, and you can picture these images where, for example, one individual was taken out of what um, used to be called Peninsula Hospital, which I believe is in the, the vicinity of where PRMC is now, and an angry white lynch mob shows up, drags him out of his room, and takes him onto the steps of the courthouse, which is where it is now. And as this is happening, the Y High football team had just been defeated by Del Mar, but they were having a banquet in what used to be the old hotel, our old office. And as this commotion is taking place, people would go out onto the balcony, they would begin to look and to watch. And what I've learned from this book is some pretty uh, haunting statistics. For example, it says, there is no record of any white person ever having been convicted of murder for lynching a black person, not in the thousands of instances of white on black lynchings in 34 states. Because there is a complicity that has, that has taken place where no one would identify the wrongdoers. I'd like to read you one selection because I can't think about Isaiah 1 without reading this, at least not anymore. On the Sunday morning after the two lynchings took place, white church leaders in Salisbury and Princess Anne were largely silent about the melee that had overtaken their towns just a few days earlier. 
that many of the parishioners seated in the pews had undoubtedly either participated in or witnessed a hideous public murder was not regarded as an opportunity for spiritual challenge by clergy in Wicomico and Somerset counties. In fact, white ministers were united and adamant in their determination not to mention the lynchings in their sermons. One minister of a local church that still stands in our town, that is not Asbury, by the way, The pastor reportedly did not believe this was the proper time to address his audience on the topic of the lynching as the community had suffered a strain. Isaiah chapter two has this grand vision of what could be. In fact, in the days that are coming, Jerusalem will be huge and the Torah, the instruction of God will go out and all the nations will come and join and be a part There will be no need for violence. There will be no need for war. In fact, the nations will come together. It's it's creating this huge image of what could be, but in the back, what is faced in the normal day-to-day of Judah's life is injustice. It's the widows and the orphans who aren't receiving any sort of help or care or concern. Are we complicit? This event that I laid out in Salisbury, that took place uh, about 90 years ago, almost 90 years ago now. It was 1931. There are other ways in which we might want to look at that mirror and ask the hard questions about when we come into this space and we sing these Christmas songs or we come into this space and we have these moments of holiness, if that mirrors who we are throughout the rest of the week and how we care for the people of God and those on the margins, or if that's something separate that doesn't really matter. I'm gonna say something that probably won't win me any uh, new fans, but I'm not so certain that I've really been currying much favor up to this point anyway. I don't even think that we have to go too much farther than the example of racial inequity and the silence of the white majority churches to think about how complicit we may or may not be. For some folks, it just seems so easy to rock out to Caleb on your way to church and to roll in and have this experience and never be confronted with what's happening a block or two away. Our hands. These are the conversations I have with myself all the time. Josh, are your hands, are they, can you lift them? Or is what you will show me blood? What's beautiful about Isaiah chapter two is it's, it's imaginative intrusion. And you could really just narrow it down to them saying, in days to come, in the future, this is not just at the end of it all. This is uh, what this phrase means in Hebrew is the next moment in history. It could be weeks, could be months, could be years, but it's saying that the next point, this, this something that is great is going to happen. Basically what it is is the, um, the prophet is creating a world that his audience can envision and then 
allow themselves to inhabit, to live within the world that is being constructed and to live in contrast to the rampant injustice that is taking place in days to come, people. In days to come, Jerusalem will be a site that brings people here. There will be a universality to God allowing folks to come and to experience and to be part of this family. It's a world-creating moment where Torah, the instruction, the teaching of God is going out, and what you see there is the result that there is peace in the world. When you align yourself with God and with God's teaching, there will be peace. And we, we, we have this image of the implements of war being turned into farming tools. There's an organization that functions right now. It's called rawtools.org, and you can get sweet T-shirts there and stuff. But what they attempt to do is they attempt to take um, guns and uh, weaponry from people who are handing it in, and then they take this text to its literal extremes and they refashion those guns and those knives and whatever into farming tools. And for some of you sitting here, you think, well, that's really stupid. Why would you waste a perfectly good gun or knife on this, on this idea? But what's interesting about this is it provides a vision of what could be in the world. It provides a glimpse of what Isaiah 2 is going after. It provides an example, perhaps, where God is moving and shaping and attempting to bring people in this direction. I quipped the other day to a friend of mine because I was actually wearing one of the T-shirts from this organization, and I showed it to him, and he said, well, that looks like a bunch of nonsense because he just he likes to shoot guns and whatever. And I said, well, you know, somebody has to be a pacifist in the world to just bring this image of the kingdom of God to the world. And as I do that, can you please keep me safe? <laughs> and because we live in a really strange world where it's nearly impossible for us to live out this call to nonviolence, but there has to be images. What kind of world are we creating in this space in our homes, for our kids? How are we attempting to get them to dream beyond what is and to start living and participating in what should be? What world are we envisioning as a people? It's interesting because I've been reading this book called The Dangerous Act of Worship, and he's basically saying some of this Isaiah chapter one stuff. You can't come in here and worship while also being a participant in injustice. You have to care about things of the world in order for your worship to make any sense whatsoever. And he says, uh, it's a telling cultural indictment that the church today is one of the last places people expect to see acts of imagination what they figure that we will demonstrate to them is the same old thing. You come in and you get three songs and you get a message and then you take some communion and you go home and nothing ever changes. Part of that, I believe, is because we're scared to talk about real issues. Part of that is because we don't feel equipped to talk about solutions. But can we change that perception that there's no imagination here 
can we change the perception that we just come into this space with blood on our hands? Can we change the perception that this is just part of our routine and actually begin to create a world, to envision a new reality that we can participate in? Not to call you guys out, but looking around, we have opportunities. Students, teachers, first responders, healthcare folks. We've got people all across the map. This doesn't have to be the biggest of the big, but it can be the most subtle yet consistent expression of your love of Jesus and your attempt to follow him and not to live in an Isaiah 1 world, but instead to bring Isaiah chapter 2 to bear here and now. The text that we're looking at, it, it concludes, some people place it differently, but at least in our reading today, it's the capstone of what's happened in the first four verses. And the author really just says, <clears throat> come, let's walk by the light of the Lord. What my doctoral supervisor uh, said about this passage is it links what comes before with a practical application. The author is not just wanting people to think big thoughts. The author is wanting people to begin to move towards living out the vision, to put it into practice. There's going to be a day when Jerusalem is the place and everybody's going to come there and that nations won't be at war anymore, and God is going to oversee the judicial system, and it's going to be a beautiful place. Come, let's do that. Come, let's live that. Come, let's, let's enact that for the world to see, even if we are a small group that is attempting to do that. Come, let's walk by the light of the Lord. Oh, this is going to seem like a money grab, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. <laughs> Leave the guilt. Just throw it over your shoulder like that. It's your hair back. Okay. One way into these sorts of things <clears throat> is to put our money where our mouth is. One thing might be for you on your way out to take one of those tags because the people that they represent are folks that are ministering each week to Hebron's finest. These kids that need a mentor and folks have said, you know what, I'll do that. Maybe another way for you to respond is for you to think about becoming part of that beautiful work where you go each week to hang out with a, anywhere from a kindergartner through a high schooler and just spending time with them. Maybe a way for you to respond to this is by, Gianna, plug your ears, is by putting your arms around one of our own who is going through a weird time of transition in the midst of tragedy. Susie, what did it mean to you when the community surrounded you with love? Perhaps when we envision the world, it shouldn't just stay out there somewhere, but it should be enacted. Maybe there's other ways. I'm sure there are. Conversations that need to be had. Decisions that need to be made. Commitments that need to be 
tightened. Perhaps our worship demonstrates some of this injustice that we can no longer turn a blind eye towards, nor should we, and we should begin to walk arm in arm towards this beautiful image of hope and peace in a world that doesn't have many images of hope and peace. This isn't a typical Jesus in the manger Christmas message, but I'm hopeful that you get some of the connections. In Advent, we are expecting, we are anticipating, we are awaiting the coming of Jesus. And now as followers of Jesus, we are expecting and we are anticipating and we are awaiting him coming again to make this earth what it should be. But the very cool thing about this whole system is we have a chance here and now to live it, to walk in it, and to show it to others. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.